0: Okay, Uh, I'd like to welcome everybody to um, this evening's lecture by uh, Richard Layard. Uh, I'm delighted uh, that you could come this evening. Um, My name's John Van Rien. I'm the uh, director for the Center for Economic Performance. And uh, this is the last lecture in the lecture series uh, to celebrate uh, 21 years of the Center for Economic Performance. And we thought it would be uh, the most appropriate thing to end with with, not only an excellent lecture, of course, but with uh, Richard as the founder of the center 21 years ago. So uh, I'm very happy that uh, he agreed to give this uh, final uh, closure, give us closure to uh, a very long uh, birthday party over the uh, the last year that we've been having these lectures. Um, I don't think I need to give Richard very much introduction because uh, I'm sure you all know him and his work. Uh, I'll just say uh, on a personal note that um, I feel like I've known Richard all my intellectual life. He's certainly been one of the inspirations for me to become an economist. Um, One one of the things which uh, is so impressive about Richard is his kind of breadth of uh, intellectual thought. And knowledge, and his ability, in a way which is almost unparalleled, I think, in uh, in, in European economics, perhaps even world economics, to translate very deep and profound insights in, in social science into practical public policies, and then to be a kind of leader in trying to get those policies put into practice. And you'll get one of the excellent examples of that tonight in the field of mental health. I've been instructed to point out the uh, Twitter hashtag. Somewhere here we are. Suggested hashtags for Twitter users, hash LSC layout in the bottom right uh, right hand corner. So for those of you who like to tweet and such things, there it is. And uh, I'll just now hand over to Richard. And uh, Mm -hmm. thank you very much.
1: Well, thanks ever so much uh, for asking me, John. Um, I don't know if you know the story about Nigel Lawson when he was Chancellor of the Exchequer. Um, and he was uh, visiting an old people's home. Uh, and he was in conversation with one of the uh, uh, elder ladies. And uh, the conversation drifted towards politics. So he felt he should say to her, um, by the way, do you know who I am? Uh, to which she replied, No, dear, but I'm sure one of the nurses could tell you. (laughs) Well, (laughs) I want to talk about mental health at at all ages because, of course, it is an important dimension of of all our lives. Uh, And I'm going to argue it's a major source (coughs) of many of our uh, problems of our society. Uh, But unfortunately, that was not how it was seen 17 years ago, Uh, for example, by the ex-director, of the LSE, William Beveridge, when he uh, designed his blueprint uh, for the welfare state. What he saw were only five uh, great giants that were causing all the problems. Uh, And they were, as I'm sure you all know, uh, poverty, unemployment, education, housing, and disease. And of course, when he said disease, uh, he meant physical disease. Uh, There was no mention of a sixth giant which was mental uh, illness. And if you look at what's happened in the 70 years since his report, we've made huge strides on his five giants, except perhaps for unemployment, which goes up and down. But all the other four have been radically changed. Uh, But yet, uh, there is still widespread misery in our society. Uh, The surveys that we have uh, suggest that uh, happiness and misery are much the same now as they were in the immediate post-war period. Uh, so obviously uh, the beverage uh, blueprint had left something out. What was it? Well, I would say it was the human factor, basically. It was the problems which come from inside ourselves rather than from, from outside ourselves. Uh, and it's because of the, the problems <laughs> of what is coming from inside ourselves that despite the unparalleled prosperity uh, and mostly high, unemployment, high employment we've had uh, we now observe more family conflict, less trust more crime, etc. than when Beveridge wrote and this is one reason of course why uh, there is now this movement to find a new metric uh, for measuring the progress of our society, uh, saying we need more than GDP, we need more even than the UN Development Index with education and life expectancy, we need something which includes the quality of our inner experience. So I'd like us to start, I'm not going to mainly talk about the well-being issue, but I want to start on that, um, because that is partly a motivation for this. Uh, To be fair to uh, the uh, people um, who thought about these things before, nobody, I don't think anybody ever said that GDP was the only measure. Uh, of the progress of society. So that's a caricature. Uh, what, what is new is that uh, many of us are proposing um, a proper metric, uh, which is the, the metric of well being. Um, so, questions like uh, overall, how satisfied are you with your life nowadays? These have been asked for decades now. We understand their properties. They've been increasingly validated. Here are a few, few types of validation. Uh, We can predict and explain to a considerable extent how people answer these questions. We can use the way they answer these questions to predict their behavior and even things like their life expectancy. But for me, the most important was always that we have found these areas in the brain where the electrical activity, quotes objectively measured, is well correlated with what people say about their own experience. So I think we can accept Uh, these self-reports as not perfect, but uh, a valid proxy (coughs) for what we care about, which is the quality of people's life experience. Uh, And as I'm sure you know, uh, these measures uh, show no rise in well-being in many countries. If I can get this thing going. Let's try. Ah, There we go. These are the US data, uh, three lots of time series uh, all pointing down a bit. Uh, These are the West German data pretty much flat, two surveys and these are two uh, British time series. I've got some more observations now for the 50s which are quite high Um, and you can see that uh, there is a rather favourable trend uh, over the last 30 years but uh, we are not back uh, at levels such as we had in the 50s. There's another two observations up there to be added in the 50s. So uh, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's not uh, a great picture in any of those countries. There are countries in which the picture is better. Isn't there are countries with rising trends. But I think it's clear that um, in advanced countries, economic growth has not brought uh, as much increase in life satisfaction as people expected if they had these extraordinary uh, improvements in living standards and, and, of course, in the beverage variables, education, health, housing and so on. And incidentally, let me immediately lay to rest the notion that uh, the fact that uh, we are no happier is due to increased inequality because, uh, in fact, life satisfaction didn't rise when inequality was falling uh, in the 50s and 60s in both Britain and America. So what's the problem? Well, there are many factors, and, of course, uh, a proper account would go into all the social factors and all the different aspects of the personal life, but I just want to concentrate on one factor only for the rest of today, our failure to grapple adequately with the problem of mental illness. How do I know mental illness matters? Well, I'm going to give you an equation to explain life satisfaction among British men aged 34 in 2004. Right. This equation, the one on the left, uh, includes all the most powerful explanatory variables available, and it shows for each of them the beta statistic, which is the partial correlation coefficient for each variable holding down the variable's constant. Uh, So just look at the, the top three rows of this table, and you can see the most powerful variable in the first column is the mantle malaise of the individual. I've taken it eight years back, so as not to be tautologous. You see, that's a very powerful variable explaining life satisfaction eight years later. It's more than twice as powerful as the income the person had at the time of the survey when their life satisfaction was measured. Uh, Even if we measure mental malaise 18 years earlier, as in the second column, 18 years years earlier, as in the second column, uh, it still has almost as much effect as current income. Now, if you don't like life satisfaction uh, as a dependent variable, here here are some more beverage-like dependent variables, household income per head and health. Uh, In the first column, uh, you will see that mental malaise eight years earlier is almost as important as educational qualifications in determining the household income per head of an individual. In the second column, you can see that Uh, self-reported health uh, is again greatly affected by previous mental health, even when you include uh, previous self-reported health. And then if you're a labour economist like uh, most of us here, including uh, John, uh, you might just want to look at some earnings equations, and you'll see that far from earnings being chiefly or overwhelmingly dependent uh, on IQ, brain power, or uh, educational qualifications. This is a, uh, the first one is an equation from Sweden which uh, takes you back towards the, uh, the, the person's uh, adolescence and you'll see that the non-cognitive skill is as important as the cognitive skill. The second equation uh, distinguishes between two of the non-cognitive Uh, dimensions of personality, uh, one surrounding emotional problems and the other surrounding conduct problems. And some of you will know that uh, Jim Hackman, who's one of the world's great economists, has come into this area and has noticed the importance of non-cognitive skills, but he's thought of non-cognitive skills as to do with conduct. And this equation is quite interesting because it's showing that the emotional dimension of personality is as important as the behavioural dimension of personality, or more so. Uh, Finally, let me just quote a famous uh, study of educational performance, which some of you may have heard of, uh, by Martin Seligman and others. This is a group of American eighth graders (coughs) who were tested at the beginning of the school year for their IQ and for their self-discipline. and At the end of the year, of course, they got their final grades, And what explained those grades, self-discipline explained twice as much as IQ. So uh, that's just a background to why we should take all this seriously. Uh, Here's what I want to do uh, tonight. Uh, I want to talk about the scale of mental illness, uh, its economic costs, uh, the fact that cost-effective treatments exist, uh, but they're not adequately available, (coughs) even though they could be. Uh, Then the issue of prevention of mental illness, and finally the implications of all this for social science, the future of the London School of Economics. Mm. Um, And I hope that when you've heard all this evidence, then you will agree with the main proposal that I want to make uh, this evening, Um, which is, uh, guess uh, what, that mental health should become the sixth pillar of the welfare state. Um, now all the other pillars have their own cabinet minister and I don't think we'll ever get mental health taken seriously enough unless it has its own cabinet minister um, not in a separate department within the department of health but a separate cabinet minister uh, for mental health and uh, and social care um, so my, my object uh, tonight is to persuade you that uh, this is a serious and big enough issue um, to warrant that Um, I've actually posted this lecture uh, on the web and I sent it to a few people I knew and this is um, the first answer I got which (laughs) was written at 05.10 hours New Zealand time from Stephen Fry (laughs) this is what he says absolutely wonderful if I weren't stuck in New Zealand hobbiting away like a thing possessed, I'd be in the Strangers Gallery cheering until removed by Black Rod. <laughs> I obviously thinks you're all members of the House of Lords. Anyway, uh, um, so that's one, but uh, I hope I can persuade you too. Um, I want to warn you, I'm going to go quite fast. I went to a wonderful lecture by Stephen Pinker here, which I was impressed by the speed at which he went. And he didn't explain all the slides. And I'm not going to do that, I'm going to talk about them. And they're on the web if you want to go back and uh, check up. Okay, So here's the first issue. is a scale Um, and a definition, of course. So what is mental illness? Let's say people are mentally ill when they experience serious and persistent distress or impairment due to abnormal feelings or behaviour which are psychological or neurobiological in origin. So here's prevalence. And, And this is got not by people going to the doctor this is a household survey a regular one that's been done um, very well by the Office of National Statistics Um, in fact it's been done uh, three times since 1993 Um, there's a very slight increase over the period um, which is similar to some other countries where there have been repeated surveys but what you'll often hear of are completely implausible uh, statements based on retrospective questionnaires, not using the same survey time and again, but asking people what they remember, which usually imply that there's been an explosion in mental illness, and you will hear phrases like an epidemic of depression. I don't think I've come across any psychiatrist who believes this, um, uh, except perhaps the ones who publish it. Um, but uh, what I do think is this that mental health problems have been with us since the Stone Age uh, and what is new is not the problems but the solutions Uh, now for the first time uh, there are real things that we can do about it just to set the scale of this uh, in perspective I want to compare it with the scale of physical ill health and I'm going to use an analysis done by the World health organization which uses an evidence-based scale uh, of severity for each condition, physical and mental, and then multiplies them by the prevalence. And the the upshot of this analysis is remarkable. Um, It was given to me by Mike Parsonage here, but I think it's absolutely extraordinary. Uh, Shall I show it to you first? No, I'll tell you because it's so funny. The, The finding is this that mental illness is not only the largest single illness of people of working age it is actually as big as all the other illnesses of people of working age put together it's as big as back pain, heart pain lung problems, diabetes, cancer you put everything else together and you get the same amount as you get of mental illness so here's the prevalence in blue of mental illness Uh, ignoring the last observation which is 60 plus and you can see that the area under the blue curve um, is the same as the the area under the red curve for all other conditions. I I think this is absolutely amazing and this of course is again based on household surveys. So let me come on now to the question of the the economic cost of all of this which the Sainsbury Centre has done such great work on. Um, Obviously um, this is posing costs for the public finances and for the economy. So let me start with people, the rates of people on disability benefit in different countries. Incidentally, most of these numbers are very similar in different countries, different advanced countries. Okay, so there are the proportion of the population of working age um, on disability benefits due to mental illness. Extraordinarily similar everywhere. Um, Underestimated everywhere because it doesn't include all the people who have uh, back pain and inexplicable physical conditions which may be psychological uh, problems uh, in disguise. So roughly half of all disability benefits, again, are coming from mental illness. The same as the previous table I showed you for the prevalence in the population Um, viewed uh, from a morbidity point of view. But of course the the numbers on disability benefits only measure a part of the economic impact of mental illness. Uh, First, not all those who can't work get disability benefits. So let's just look at the overall employment impact, including people not entitled to disability benefits. (coughs) And this is showing you the employment rate for mentally ill people as a percentage of the uh, general uh, employment rate. And it shows that for the most mentally ill people, their employment rate is reduced by a third, and for the next 15% their employment rate is reduced by a fifth. So a simple calculation shows that if these people had the same employment rates as everybody else, employment would be 4.4% higher. So that's a a rough measure of the impact of mental health on GDP via non-employment, given that the relation between mental health and IQ is actually quite small. (coughs) But then there's another cost. Uh, Mentally ill people who are at work take more time off sick than other people. In fact, half, the, you, you, you're noticing this word half all the time, half of all days off sick are due to mental illness. That's really expensive for employers. You'd think they would think about it a lot. But I went to a, a big meeting um, at Davos uh, in January um, of something called the Workplace Wellness Alliance. Uh, which consists of 60 of the world's most enlightened large companies. So it was discussing the importance of wellness of the workforce. And the meeting went on for 90 minutes and and by the time we got to the 85th minute we'd had a series of presentations about cardiovascular, cancer, diabetes, lung problems, etc. problems of aging no mention of mental illness even though half of employers problems are coming from mental illness. People just don't want to discuss it. It is a really a real area of blockage. Uh, so here's those figures, <coughs> absenteeism. Um, people with a mental disorder are uh, so much more absent uh, than people. Uh, without one. And again, if you do some calculations, you'll find that the overall average hours are reduced by 1%. (coughs) Um, On top of that, there's a cost of what they call presenteeism, uh, people whose mind is elsewhere and underperform even when they're at work. Uh, This is difficult to research, (laughs) largely based on self-reports by workers, uh, but it may add another 1% to 2% to the direct output costs um, uh, 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 on top of uh, absenteeism. <coughs> so here's an attempt to put all these figures together just to get some feel of the scale. Uh, so non-employment, I gave you 4.4, absenteeism <laughs> 1.1, presenteeism perhaps 2, something like 7.5% p- of working hours lost. And then on top of that, uh, there's a cost to the healthcare system. Um, Treating mental illness and providing the related social care costs roughly 1.5% of GDP. But on top of this, people who have chronic physical conditions of given severity cost roughly 50% more if they are mentally ill. That's the the US evidence, and holds constant the severity of the physical condition. And the extra cost we're talking about is physical medicine, physical medical procedures, not mental health care. So that means that in Britain, the rest of the health service is bearing another cost equal to roughly 0.8% of GDP due to the people uh, having mental illness. So if you take all of these costs together, sort of coming to up towards 10% of GDP, more than half of it, I would say, is falling on the taxpayer and the rest, of course, on the individuals concerned and on their employers. Um, so I, I hope you think that that's a, a, a big enough number <laughs> to worry about. <coughs> and I haven't, of course, included these other kinds of costs, which are even more difficult uh, to uh, compute. Now, to say, um, as is often done, you know, mental health is terrible; it costs all this money. And Of course, that, uh, and, and therefore, something should be done about it that's no real argument because maybe there would be nothing you could do about it. Uh, The next thing is you've got to show there's something you can do about it, um, which is effective enough to justify the cost. (coughs) Um, Well, here's one thing. Uh, um, No, uh, seriously. Uh, 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 Until the early 19... 50s, um, there was almost nothing that could be done about mental illness uh, except tender loving care. Um, and, and that is what has changed. And that's why we are here discussing the subject. We wouldn't be discussing it otherwise. In the 1950s, the great discoveries were made in drugs for schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, and depression, and then more recently, of course, for ADHD. But since The 1970s, there have been major discoveries uh, in evidence-based methods of psychological therapy. (coughs) Um, Many people here know much more about this than I do, but uh, as I'm sure you know, by far the best researched is cognitive behavioral therapy, or CBT, which helps people to reorder their thoughts and uh, thus to manage their feelings and their behavior. For anxiety disorders, typical recovery rates are over 50%. Uh, and are at least as good as with medication. And uh, in most anxiety cases, recovery secured through CBT is permanent, which is not the case with medication. Similarly for depression, recovery rates after four months are similar with CDP and with antidepressants, but relapse is again much less likely uh, if you've been treated with CBT. And this is why uh, NICE, National Institute for Clinical Excellence, recommend that all patients with these conditions uh, should be offered the choice of medication or CBT or alternatively certain other evidence-based psychological therapies for specific conditions. And these recommendations are, are I think critical because many patients are willing to take drugs uh, which means they don't get treated at all um, and of course because the effects of psychological therapy are on average longer lasting. Now, uh, a word about the cost, because that's the other side of this, of course. (coughs) Uh, CBT uh, costs about 750 pounds for a typical course of 10 sessions. (coughs) Let me take you through this a little carefully. So against that cost, we have to set the savings that result when successfully treated people return to work or or keep the job that they would otherwise have lost. This is where labor economics comes in. Unfortunately, there have only been a few really proper experimental follow-ups done with proper control groups. They've all been done in the US. But they show that among people treated with CBT, Uh, Some 4% of them work over the subsequent 25 months, who would not otherwise have done so. So for every 100 people treated,
2: uh,
1: at least 4 times 25 extra months are worked, which makes an average of one month per person. And what does an extra month's work, save the British taxpayer, 750 (laughs) pounds? So the net cost of the exchequer is zero. Uh, and uh, it's therefore what they call in technical terms a no-brainer. Now, at the same time, there are almost certainly big savings to the NHS on other healthcare costs for the reasons that I gave to you before: uh, that mentally ill people uh, impose quite heavy costs on the healthcare system through repeated GP visits and are uh, often uh, being referred. Uh, for physical symptoms to uh, acute uh, consultant appointments. um, Where, I don't know if you know this extraordinary figure, half of all people referred for acute consultant appointments uh, in London um, come away with no physically explicable symptoms, a half. I'm not saying they're all psychologically (laughs) disturbed, but certainly quite a few of them uh, Need psychological help rather than physical help. So, if we can treat people uh, for their psychological problems, uh, we will find that we're getting less of these um, costs imposed on the physical healthcare system. Uh, a US meta analysis took all the 28 studies which had compared healthcare costs between people treated with CBT and a randomized control group. And in 26 of the 28 studies, uh, the reduction in healthcare care uh, use over the subsequent 24 months was enough to cover the costs of the CBT. So these are the sorts of reasons why NICE, eight years ago, started recommending uh, that all patients suffering from anxiety or depression should be offered CBT, or as I say, uh, certain other therapies. Um, but were the recommendations carried out uh, for many years, uh, barely, barely, barely. <laughs> um, so, uh, let's, let me come on now to this, this issue the issue of under treatment, um, which is universal in the world. Under treatment of mental illness is absolutely universal. It's amazing actually how mental health statistics are very similar in most countries. Um, why are only a quarter of people with uh, diagnosable conditions these are the household surveys I talked about uh, not in treatment um, compared with well over 75% for almost every physical condition over 90% for most and I think there are three obvious reasons people are ashamed uh, don't want to to admit there's a problem Um, but I think that the stigma Uh, which people feel, is greatly compounded by the next two points I want to make. One, that people do not realize that mental health problems can be treated successfully, which is just a matter of a very long time lag. And the history of many treatments that that didn't work doesn't help. And then uh, third point, the facilities are simply not available. So why come forward and I would say that that is the main binding constraint so here are a few figures if, they did, if people did come forward in 2009 um, the majority of people treated for depression or anxiety uh, in, in, uh, uh, the, in NHS uh, specialist care was over six months well as you remember There there were no uh, physical conditions for which anybody waited more than 18 weeks, except whatever it was, 2 or 3%. The majority over 6 months, which is pretty hopeless if you're in a serious depression or crisis. And before the last election uh, we got the Royal College of General Practitioners to do a survey of GPs um, where they asked them um, could they get for their uh, patients, the psychological help they needed um, uh, and only 15% said they could usually get uh, the help that their patients needed I and mean, it's terribly serious, isn't it? This is, this is uh, 2010 we're now talking about. <coughs> so I would say this is simply a case of discrimination, really serious discrimination, probably actually the greatest health inequality let's, let's uh, try and use that phrase, health inequalities, everybody has very, very bad things. So why don't we call this the leading health inequality? Um, but of course, what it reflects is a long-standing resistance to taking seriously the inner life as compared with what we can see and touch. <coughs> I think that the the worldwide Well-Being Movement is helping to change that, and it's very important. From the mental health perspective, Uh, lobby point of view, that bigger background movement which is going on. Um, But to end the discrimination which was so obvious (coughs) in our own National Health Service, uh, we uh, established a group in the centre with two or three people who are here now in 2005, Centre for Economic Performance Mental Health Policy Group, to make the case for proper treatment for mentally ill people um, and to show how it could be provided and much of the case that I've already described uh, was developed in that group fortunately the government listened in 2008 uh, they launched the Improving Access to Psychological Therapies programme that basically followed the the proposals uh, step by step which had been made by our group so I will just say a word I think some of you know a lot about this but some others less (laughs) about this this program because it is is, uh, one of the uh, rather uh, more remarkable success stories of recent years. Uh, This is a six-year plan to ensure that by 2014 the NICE guidelines were being delivered throughout the country to the patients who needed them. The method uh, was a new service for which most of the staff would have to receive a year's training on top of whatever mental health training (coughs) they already had. Uh, The service would need 8,000 therapists by then, of whom 6,000 would have uh, had to have been trained. And in addition, there should be employment support workers, (coughs) one for every eight therapists, help people stay in work or regain employment if they'd lost it. Uh, The programme has gone pretty much according to plan, Uh, it's been continued uh, by the present government. Uh, We're now in year four and, with fingers crossed, we will achieve these objectives by 2014. Uh, the recovery rates <coughs> have been nearer 40 than 50%, um, but that's partly because so much of the therapy has been delivered by trainees and the recovery rates are, are rising. I'll just mention the thing which most amazed me uh, uh, about this whole uh, CBT procedure was that every patient's outcome is monitored in every session. So what we're having here is a service uh, which knows more about its outcomes than any other service within the National Health Service. Um, and we can learn from that, of course, uh, what makes for success and failure. For example, <coughs> the services uh, where a NICE guidelines are being followed more, where the staff are more experienced, uh, are those where the recovery rates are higher. But so far, the objective that we've set ourselves, I, I think, has actually been uh, very limited. As you see there, it's to treat 15% of the diagnosable population. And um, it, we're becoming increasingly aware, of course, of all these other groups that were not really catered for. For example, the, the people with chronic physical illness who have comorbid mental illness. Their mental illness often makes their physical illness worse. If you treat their uh, psychological problems, uh, there's oodles of evidence uh, that that is good for their physical problems, uh, and so on. So what we're going to need is, after the end of this six-year program, another three-year program, uh, to expand into the treatment of of all those kind of groups. Okay. well, I've talked so far uh, uh, about adults. Partly because <coughs> uh, it, it's been very easy to make the case there because the labour market aspect is so clear and governments are very responsive to uh, issues of benefit dependence uh, and uh, low employment rates. Um, but it'd obviously it would be best if we could prevent most adult mental illness in the first place, which brings me to children and mental health uh, promotion and prevention of illness. So a a half of all adults with mental illness have shown it by the age of 15 (coughs) so here's the prevalence of mental illness in in childhood (coughs) it's going up between the uh, 5 to 10 period and the 10 to 16 uh, teenage period Um, but there it is 10% uh, and again only a quarter of these are in treatment, the same same discrimination. And just to show you the the range of problems which these children have, these are the same 10% of children that I mentioned to you before compared with other children. (coughs) You can see that children with mental health problems are at least five times more likely than others to bunk off school or be excluded, (coughs) as well as being more likely to smoke and take drugs and Uh, self-harm, and and this next table (coughs) shows you how these children's lives develop uh, into adulthood if they've had behavioural conduct problems in childhood. left-hand column is essentially those with what would be classified as conduct disorder, the worst 5%. Uh, We're comparing them with the best behaved 50%. You can see the extraordinary difference uh, to the extent to which these children go on to commit crime, to become teenage parents, live off welfare. Even with controls, these differences remain very large. Um, So I think it's pretty obvious um, that many of these problems which we think of as being failures of the welfare state um, have been failures in part because we've not tackled uh, the mental illness underlying uh, affecting the people uh, who are involved in these problems. Uh, And these problems, therefore, have continued as they were in beverages, they are in many ways worse. (coughs) So the case for early intervention is obviously based on this extent to which the childhood disorder predicts the individual (coughs) uh, life (coughs) of misery and the, the costs for society. But again, the issue is whether anything can be done um, and whether it's cost-effective. Uh, there's been much less research on the treatment of children than of adults. But as for adults, there are well-established treatments that are recommended by NICE. <coughs> um, too far. Right. Let me talk a bit about uh, treatments for uh, mentally ill children first. For children with anxiety problems, uh, CBT typically leads to 50% recovery rates, and for children with mild to moderate conduct disorder, parent training produces improvement in two-thirds of cases. These are quite cheap treatments, but for the more serious disorders, especially conduct disorder, much more intensive work is needed, such as multisystemic therapy, uh, costing around 6,000. But the shocking thing is that only a quarter, as I said, of all the children who need treatment are receiving it. And I don't know if you're aware, but uh, the biggest cuts probably affecting maybe any public services are affecting child mental health services. We don't have good figures. But child mental health services are jointly funded by the NHS and local authorities. But since they're not actually run (coughs) by local authorities, the easiest thing of all for a local authority to cut is its contribution to the child mental health services. This is deeply shocking. Uh, and uh, It uh, it is an appalling outcome of our system of government uh, that this this, uh, real real attack on child mental health services uh, is going on at this time. As I said, the case, the main case, as always, (coughs) for dealing with mental health problems is humanitarian, but there's also the cost-saving argument. More difficult to compute for children (coughs) than for adults, um, because many many of the the cost savings come so much later uh, in a person's life. And there are very few treatment trials uh, that have followed children long enough to get believable uh, measures of cost savings, so they must be there so finally, on this tack, let me say a word about uh, prevention <coughs> and and the first point about prevention um, meaning general approaches let's say in schools that will stop people getting into. Uh, mental problems, is that good intentions are not enough, I mean they never are anywhere, (laughs) but in this area in particular I think there are many well-intentioned programs that have been carried out with the best will in the world and have had no effect. Um, The most recent example was the British government's uh, program for uh, the SEAL program, Social and Emotional Learning, uh, in secondary schools (coughs) which was evaluated in a proper controlled way and was found to have had no effect at all. Very well-intentioned. Good people really, really giving their best. And I think that the conclusion of that evaluation was right, uh, that the only way you can be sure of uh, achieving something is to have a a very structured (coughs) and well-manualized approach. That is, of course, how psychological therapy has made its breakthrough uh, in the last 30 years. Um, And there are now a lot of manualized programs which have been uh, surveyed uh, in this study here um, by the uh, US so-called CASEL collaboration. Um, Of these 180 programs, you will see the average short-run effects of a program are 11 percentile points on achievement <coughs> and roughly s- similar on behavior and emotional uh, state. Um, and, of course, <coughs> that means that some programs have had better results. <coughs> but most of these programs have not been followed very far at all. Um, we were involved in our center in promoting uh, the University of Pennsylvania's resilience program for all the 11-year-olds in 22 secondary schools Um, this is an 18 hour I'd stress this again, 18 hour 18 hours to change a young person's life question mark, 18 hour (coughs) program teaches the children to observe and manage their own thoughts and feelings and understand and respond to the thoughts and feelings of others there were effects, of course uh, not of course, but I'm happy to say there were effects, otherwise we wouldn't be at all happy with having um, promoted this program. Um, So if you take the bottom 40% and you uh, remove the effects of regression to the mean, uh, you still find that their degree of depression was reduced by about 0.2 standard deviations. But we were honest and followed them for three years, and it faded. And my guess is that in nearly all these programs, (coughs) there is this problem of fading. and the, the reason for fading is just extremely simple. It's the programs are too small. It's just as simple as that, not long enough. How could you change somebody's life for over a long period, in 18 hours, at that age, age anyway, when they were hardly aware that they had a problem? Uh, it, 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 it's, it, it's, it's, of course, not going to be the way to do these things. And we will get into a lot of trouble if we start touting particular programs. We, we should go back to Aristotle um, and think much more uh, about the development of habits which have to be developed over a long, long period. Habits are central to the development of character and will only produce a more mentally healthy school population if we spend more time on developing those habits which means, of course, the school ethos has got to be better. No time to talk about that. But also, we need a sustained evidence-based curriculum uh, for personal, social, and health education throughout, throughout the school life. And we are now involved in our center in devising um, a, a program of uh, one hour a week for four years uh, that would provide the basis for uh, using existing evidence programs Based programmes combined in suitable uh, groupings um, over those first four years of secondary school life, and we're hoping to to pilot that in quite a large way. <coughs> uh, just to make one other obvious point about mental health. Um, well, I'll, I'll ask you a programme, uh, <laughs> a question. Um, you know Daniel Kahneman, who's very much into this. <coughs> Um, was talking here last year. Um, he, he has pioneered this method of studying uh, a person's experience of life in <coughs> by getting them to reconstruct the previous day into episodes, and uh, what were they doing, <coughs> how did they feel, who were they with. Uh, and I guess uh, who people most dislike being with? Their line manager. I mean that is the most miserable time of the day is when you're in the same room as your line manager this is extraordinarily serious reflection on the quality of management doesn't it? I think it says something very serious, it's a big chunk of people's lives and people of course quite a bit of uh, mental illness at the workplace comes from uh, the uh, workplace atmosphere, not most of it most, most of mental health problems that people have to go off sick for are coming from outside the workplace. But at least a quarter of them are coming from (laughs) at the workplace. Um, I I won't go uh, on about this in detail, um, but uh, I think it's obvious that uh, we need a better approach to management (coughs) and better job design and for people who get into trouble um, a more proactive way of handling absence. Now, This was also discussed at this meeting at Davos and I was shocked to learn that in many countries, and this is no longer the case in Britain, uh, managers are not allowed to ring up their sick employees if they are off sick uh, and ask them how they are and what, what the problem is. Uh, this this, this put, opens them to, to legal um, problems if they do that uh, in Britain uh, we've had a, a big change in this, this, uh, this direction um, towards openness um, uh, and a positive approach to absence but of course we've got to become a lot more open about mental health problems and get treatment for those who need it so let me move on to my last topic <coughs> the future of the LSE <laughs> um, We will only, of course, be able to make serious progress on problems of mental health and well-being if we have a better understanding of the role of mental health in all aspects of our national life. And what we really need is a complete model of the life course. So this is a sort of schematic way of thinking about it. And um, there, there are different features of a person's life, which I've listed seven now. Um, to me, if you believe that well-being and how people experience their lives uh, is a central, centrally important thing, uh, the top level is the central variable of interest, but the emotional well-being of the individual. It's the ultimate criterion on which we would judge the state of our society. But, of course, to understand how that evolves over this period, and these are meant to be ages, 5, 15, 25, 35, etc., to understand how that top line evolves, the blobs are meant to be, as it were, measures of the state at each particular age, uh, you would have to know not, not only how it is affected by all the other things, but how it affects all the other things. So what you need uh, is uh, a model in which we are tracing how emotional well-being affects conduct, educational performance, physical health, employment, earnings, parenting. We also need to know how those last six in turn affect emotional well-being. So what's going on here? Each dot is in principle affected by every dot that's prior to it in time. including, of course, some of these these, uh, dots in the left-hand bottom corner, uh, which are the family background of of the individual. Um, And the other types of dots are things which are not the state variables that are evolving over a person's life, but the shocks, or maybe even the policy interventions uh, to which they're subject. So for for every single dot you can think of here, uh, there's an equation which links it potentially to all the previous dots. So I've just given you one equation there in the bottom left-hand corner. So that that would be a dot saying physical health at age five depends on socioeconomic status, parents, health, genes, and shocks which have happened between 0 and 5. Uh, This is just a very schematic uh, way of describing the kind of model we're trying to build so for every, every dot on the, uh, on the picture, uh, there's an equation linking it to some or all of the previous dots to the left-hand side of it. <coughs> now, obviously, bits of this picture have already been uh, worked on by many people. It's not that this is a new t- topic. <coughs> But I think that the state of this subject um, is, is perhaps a bit like the state of macroeconomics in the late 1940s. Uh, that there are bits and pieces known about, the, about some relationships. But of course, to make a real progress, to have a, a model you can use for policy purposes, uh, you've got to have a, a, an estimated model of all the parts, which show how big the influence is of each upon the other. And what happened in the late 1940s were there were two big groups, one in Oxford and one in uh, Philadelphia, University of Pennsylvania, uh, that developed the models from which all the macroeconomic models used around the world today uh, derive. And I think now we know lots of bits and pieces about subjective well-being, but we still lack a model Uh, which will tell us the relative importance of all the factors. And we are hoping in our centre here uh, now in our wellbeing programme to play uh, some role in meeting that need and we are setting about estimating a model of this kind (coughs) uh, using uh, the massive cohort data which now exists in Britain and abroad. But of course there's a major caveat in all this. For the model to be any use uh, for analysing the effect of an intervention uh, it's got to be properly causal. The estimated equation must show you how any variable would change would actually change if an earlier shock were introduced into the model <coughs> but there's always a danger with these models that the observed relationships in the model are not truly causal but they reflect the common influence of some unobserved variable which persists over time and is giving uh, rise to this apparent uh, relationship, which is not truly causal. <coughs> and the most obvious emitted variable, of course, is the genes, uh, which are omitted in most of modern social science, which is why, basically, an awful lot of social science is going to have to be rewritten over the next 30 years. We have to get the genes in. That's why we're hoping some of our work can be done on twin data, which will enable us to control for the genes. But you might say, why is our centre a proper place uh, to build this model? Well, most of us are labour economists, uh, and we're quite used to studying the evolution of earnings, so it's not such a far cry to study the evolution of well-being and its distribution. And uh, I I want to uh, take this opportunity just to tell you for half a minute the history of our centre. Um, Although we're celebrating, perhaps it said so on the opening slide, the 21st year of the Centre for Economic Performance. The Centre was actually founded in 1964 by Klaus Moser here uh, and myself. Um, ten years later, um, it turned itself into the Centre for Labour e- Economics, which is led by Steve Nicholl and Dave Metcalfe Dave, yeah? that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and myself. We were soon joined by Richard, Jackman. and Chris Pissarides. We're hugely proud of Chris's Nobel Prize. And then in 2003, the leadership passed to John, uh, together with Steve Machin, uh, who've done a most wonderful job. And we were hugely proud when John recently won the prize for best European economist under 45. So it's a, it's a good record. Uh, we've produced six members of the Monetary Policy Committee. But going back to what I was saying, the heart of our business has always been to explain real wages and unemployment uh, and the way in which they're distributed across the population. That's always been the central issue uh, and interest of the centre in one way or another. So I think if we can now measure the quality of life as people experience it, as well as their wages, uh, that's a natural evolution. And I'd like to think that Beveridge, who was a very empirically minded Uh, director of the LSE, Uh, he got into great conflict with many of the economists in the department because of his uh, inductivist approach, Um, but uh, I I like to think he would have approved of this uh, empirical development. So then when we've got the proper model, this is the final point, uh, what do we do with it? Well, of course, the whole aim is to produce better policy through a more sensible kind of cost-effectiveness analysis than is currently used. As you probably know, the uh, Treasury Green Book at the moment uh, measures benefits in terms of willingness to pay. But if you think about the welfare state, most of the benefits cannot be measured in in units of willingness to pay. If you think of health, social care, law and order, environment, poverty relief, these are the most, these are the, the big ticket expenditures. They can't be. The benefits cannot be measured in units of willingness to pay. Uh, they have to be measured in units of emotional well-being or life satisfaction. And to measure them, uh, these benefits, we should be able, uh, we should have a model and use this model, uh, in conjunction, of course, with experimental data, uh, to estimate how life satisfaction would change in response a policy intervention. And the model would also give us a better fix on the net costs of an intervention uh, after the gross costs have been adjusted for all the savings of the kind uh, that I've been discussing uh, so far and which can be modelled in such a model. Uh, there's considerable interest, so you may be surprised to know, uh, in parts of the government um, in thinking, at least, about this kind of way of policy evaluation. So I think that in 25 years' time, there's a real chance that we will have much better methods of cost-effectiveness analysis, uh, and that will mean that we have governments which focus more on what really matters to our people. So uh, final reflection. Uh, What what happens in the end depends on individuals, uh, uh, partly because what governments do depends on what individuals value, uh, but also of course uh, what happens uh, is ultimately done by individuals. (coughs) So uh, a year ago a group of us launched uh, a social movement called Action for Happiness. Um, whose members pledged to try to create the most happiness they can in the world around them and the least misery. Uh, We now have over 20,000 members from over 120 countries. Uh, When we advertised for the post of the director of this movement, uh, we had wonderful uh, applications actually, quite an embarras de richesse. But one of the people had gone into the web uh, to find if there was any other Uh, organisation, charitable organisation I guess, they had the word happiness in its title Uh, and this is the message which came back on his screen Your search for happiness has produced no (laughs) (laughs) results I hope we can do better than that, thank you
0: Well, thanks for a, uh, a wonderful lecture, Richard. Do we, uh, we have some time now for questions. Richard, do you want to take one question at a time, or do you want to bundle the questions?
1: I'm one at a time. If, okay. if the question's short, I'll be short. Okay. <coughs>
0: so there's roving mics around, and could I ask you, when you ask your a question, to try and keep them short, but also to announce who you are when you ask the question. So uh, I can see one hand up there very quickly So the young lady over there.
2: I'm Amy Pollard, uh, lead analyst at CAFOD and co chair of, um, <laughs> um, uh, of the Beyond 2015
1: campaign. Sit here because he'll translate Say it again.
2: Amy Pollard, lead analyst at CAFOD and co chair of the Beyond 2015 campaign, which is a campaign uh, working for a strong and legitimate successor to the Millennium Development Goals. Um, and what I wondered was, I was fascinated by your talk, um, so thank you very much and I wondered uh, whether with your proposal to add an extra pillar to the welfare state, with, if perhaps you were aiming a little bit low, and uh, whether you'd considered whether mental health and happiness uh, might be an appropriate uh, goal or uh, element to a, to a framework that might replace the MDGs in, in 2015.
1: Well, a very interesting question. Um, I don't know if you know that the... Um, the Government of Bhutan uh, proposed a, re- a, a motion at the United Nations General Assembly in July, um, egged on by Professor Jeffrey Sachs, colleague of ours, um, to say that uh, governments should give more attention uh, to happiness as a, a, an objective of their policies. They should actually try to promote the happiness of their peoples. Um, 65 countries endorsed this proposal, including the United Kingdom, and it was passed NEMCOM. Um, but what it implied was that there's to be a conference on April the 2nd um, at the United Nations, and then there's to be a follow-up at the General Assembly uh, the following year. And the basic theme is to try and get this as one of the uh, next round of goals. Uh, people may not all know the Millennium Goals uh, end in 2015, and an I- the idea is to have, maybe they'll be called sustainable development goals, something, some, some new phrase, um, and might apply to all countries rather than just the poorest. Um, and I think it would be terrific if the uh, happiness of the people appeared as one of the criteria. of Britain book Happiness, and an analysis of new science. I presume it was subconsciously influenced by Jambas Dieter Vico and his new science. But if you could, probably was. I'd like to know if it was. And on this, I've got a colleague of mine who I mean, you know, Martin Aron, who uh, is involved with this organisation. If you could just say a little bit more about it and perhaps how one can get involved in perhaps um, working with it, the Action for Happiness programme. Well... Um the, the, uh, the, the basic aim is to have groups of like-minded people forming groups um, who uh, discuss these issues and uh, uh, decide on some form of action which is suitable for that particular group. Um, and we are providing packs for people to work through and so on. Uh, one we're hoping to have groups, of course, of school teachers in schools doing it, uh, groups of people in workplaces, especially unhappy workplaces, um, and groups in the community. Um, and they may decide to do something uh, uh, of a very uh, external social action type, or they may simply decide to learn to meditate or whatever. <coughs>
0: question over here you know, so, 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 you know, sorry sorry yeah I mean we have to let other people have questions sorry about that if there's no more questions I might come back there's a question over here though from the gentleman yeah
3: my name's Nicholas Kennedy I'm the chair of City of London link or City of London health watch as we may become known if the uh, bill progresses on Thursday um, Our remit is to look at the health and social care needs of anyone who lives or works or may use services within the square mile um, regarding any kind of health or social care, and there's one for each local authority. So um, topics you've been talking about have been of interest to me personally and of course to ourselves for some time, and we've, um, I think, uniquely persuaded our local authority that it needs to look at how mental health services are supplied to the workforce in its area because our local authority is accountable to that workforce um, in a way that no other authority in the country is. Um, What we've come up with, or what we suspect we're going to find in the preliminary results seem to be indicating this, is that for a lot of people, um, they want their therapies and their psychotherapies delivered where they work um, rather than just where they live so that they don't have to take time off work to get back home, so it doesn't involve stigma, so their line managers don't get on their back. And what I'm wondering about is, with so much of the um, health and care services factored around where the population live, how do we actually get the changes that we're after? Because as you pointed out with the delays, currently with a mental health issue, if it was physical, it would be like you cut your finger And rather than getting the antiseptic and the plaster and fixing it there and then, you wait until not just your hand but your entire arm is septic before you deal with it. So how can we actually get the physical changes we need? What strings can we pull?
1: I I can make one (coughs) very practical point, um, which arose very early in our (coughs) construction of this improved access psychological therapy program. And there there are now these services (coughs) um, in... (coughs) in every London borough but functioning well in about half the London boroughs uh, and coming up in the others Um, and we discovered very early on that uh, it was important to let people refer themselves and not have to go through their GP because people don't want to tell their GP uh, that they've got a mental problem. Uh, And they might, as you say, not even want some family member to know that (laughs) they thought they had a mental problem. So, self-referral and complete confidentiality uh, has got to be um, a central principle. And that's worked pretty well. And we found that, uh, contrary to what uh, many NHS administrators thought, that people who self-referred would be the worried well, they turn out to be actually slightly sicker, on average, than the people who who go through the GP. So, I think that's the fundamental answer. <clears throat> okay. to d- David, I Thanks. think it's got a point. Okay, go ahead.
0: And to say that although IAP services do encourage self-referral, you still need to be a local resident, so yeah, it doesn't yeah. quite solve this problem, and it's a very important one. I think the only example I know of of the problem being solved in the short term was uh, in the uh, psychological treatment <coughs> services for victims of the London bombs, where you could get uh, psychological treatment. Uh, Here in London, near work, uh, even though you were traveling in from some distance. But it was a sort of short term initiative. It's a very important point, I think.
1: Yeah, yeah. We should think about that. Thank you. Question (coughs) there?
4: Hi, Richard. Uh, Sherry Clark. I have been the coordinator of the Do-It-Yourself-Happiness project at the South London and Maudsley NHS Trust for the last four years. Um, I am now involved in a wellbeing at work project. I'm very grateful for everything you've said tonight because it's just playing so strongly to a lot of the things that I've been thinking about. And it's it's a, a little bit of a kind of left field question, I guess, but I am very conscious of The quality of people's thinking these days and you mentioned just now you know know, some people simply you know learning to meditate one of the things that I'm thinking about and looking into right now is the practice of mindfulness and you haven't mentioned this but I think this is something that really plays to what the decision makers are dealing with in their day-to-day lives right now which is multitasking constant change um, (coughs) non-stop <coughs> pressure and I just wondered if you had any thoughts about just you know basically the quality of people's thinking and what they can do about it
1: well um, we're talking about of course a, a massive cultural change is what we what we need to see um, and um, as far as mindfulness is concerned you know we have some evidence-based uh, Therapies that use mindfulness techniques, but um, I think the the, the whole que- question of you know stress reduction um, among ordinary citizens. Um, I mean, this is not going to be done. Uh, well, I don't know. <laughs> I've never understood what public health was, um, but uh, I, I I cannot see very easily the NHS leading the massive cultural change which m- makes mindfulness type practices a, a routine part of the, men- the mindset of people who are trying to manage their own stress. Maybe I'm wrong maybe I'm, I'm a pe- too pessimistic about the NHS but I, I think it's going to be through all kinds of channels I don't think it's easy to see exactly how this will happen I mean I have never seen if I can make just an interesting point. I have never seen a survey uh, which asks uh, people do you meditate or do analogous things and in what way do you do them. Um, I would love to see such a survey because I believe that there is a huge cultural change going on in our country and I would not be surprised if it turned out there were more people meditating than going to church. But, we, but nobody thinks that that is what, what is the religion of today. You never hear it discussed. But it may well be that this is going on. A lady at the back there.
5: Hello there. Um, my name is Amber Dow. I'm a
0: primary care mental health worker. You
5: need work- to speak into your mic a little bit more. My name is Amber Dowell. I'm a primary care mental health worker. So first thing to say is thank you for my job. (laughs) Um, I work within the IAP service. Um, One of the things that you haven't really touched on in your talk today is about the social determinants of mental health. And I wondered if that's something that you have looked at in your center, and just the idea of whether perhaps it would create more value for money to improve something like social housing and actually sort of thinking about where we put the responsibility for people's depression, for example. Um, and I wonder if you could just say a little bit about that.
1: Well, I mean, that's a, that's a massive, massive subject. Um, you know, what are the conditions for a happy society? <laughs> it's more or less that, isn't it? But I'll just make, it, make a, a, a couple of comments, one rather general and one rather particular. I mean, as I'm sure you know, the societies which turn out happiest and these, this tends to be very consistent from survey to survey our Scandinavian countries and incidentally the happiness surveys have much more consistent results internationally comparative happiness surveys have much more consistent results than the attempts to do, do internationally com- comparable mental health surveys uh, which have not been done so much but uh... Uh, going back to the, the happiness surveys um, Scandinavian countries always come out top now what is one thing which is obvious there is you know, the levels of trust are much higher if you ask these questions do you think most other people can be trusted you get twice as many people saying yes as in Britain so this, this idea of m- mutual responsibility and so on is much better uh, developed that's a good condition for happy living um, but Talking about, you you mentioned housing and coming more specifically to mental health. Um, There's there's been fascinating, tiny changes in housing arrangements uh, which have affected mental health admissions to hospitals enormously. For example, um, there was a a housing estate where um, the area between these, these blocks was just open so that, if you were lived on the ground floor, anybody, any of you know two or three thousand people, could, might be walking past your kitchen window, and instead they built they put some hedges in and some fences so that you know there, there were only ten people who had any reason to be walking past your kitchen window, and the the admissions to the local mental hospital from people living in the on the, on the lower stories of these it was <laughs> uh, a larger state. Uh, was reduced by a third or something like this. So uh, obviously there are, h- there are hundreds of factors at work.
0: I mean the, the model of the life course in principle <coughs> should enable us, you, to unravel some of the, uh, some of these connections in some sense. I mean obviously housing and other kind of social factors could be in principle built into this, this of causal that's network that's as Of course, well. of course. Um, okay so let's, let's keep uh, some people patiently in the back uh, there's two people so gentleman first and the lady in red afterwards
1: Stuart Proffitt, Penguin Books uh, your publisher
0: <laughs> uh, is, that, is that to say which has to be nice to you in his answer <laughs>
1: Richard have you given your lecture in the treasury and if so what was the reaction I think the reaction would be quite interesting uh, uh, I don't know. is there anyone from the Treasury here? Former, former Treasury. I think they would, be seri- they would listen seriously. No, I haven't, no. No, you've got it the first.
6: <laughs> <laughs> um, hello, I'm Judith Mooring. I'm a consultant psychiatrist in um, Primary Care um, Psychiatry Service in Kensington and Chelsea. And we've been set up to support the local IAPT service. Um, I wanted to build on a point and then ask a question. I was really excited to hear you talk about a a model of the life course. My argument is that I think we need a new psychiatry, which moves away from the deficit model and moves towards a model that sees humans as capable and strong and gives us a new mirror to look inside, a new mirror to reflect. Because when I ask patients to reflect, they're frightened of what they'll see inside because of the paradigms that have um, come from Freud's work, which was enormously important but was 100 years ago. So I I would argue for a new psychiatry, not just a new model of the life course. Um, And the other question I wanted to ask is I've always been interested in the idea of causality between depression and unemployment. Do you think unemployment causes depression or depression causes unemployment?
1: Yes, uh, I mean, as regards to these models, I mean, insofar as they use these existing cohort data sets, um, I mean, you have to take the questions which are in them. Uh, an awful lot of them are basically derived from Michael Rutter's uh, scales of various kinds, and your deeper modeling um, of of the human psyche, which I think is extremely important. is not, not, not going to be easy to incorporate. Uh, uh, but, you know, of course, in future cohort studies, if, if progress is made, these ideas can be put in. What was the second
0: one? The causality between
1: unemployment. Oh, well, it's, of, of course it's both, but, we, you know, we've got the, um, from the German socioeconomic panel, which is an annual data series, um, you can just see the, the, the huge effects which uh, unemployment um, has on the same person uh, in terms of their uh, <coughs> uh, mood uh, so no doubt unemployment affects mood but of course um, if you are, are getting into a mental health problem you are in danger of losing your job and that, that, that happens also Any in front?
3: <coughs>
2: um, Amy Williams, master student here at the LSE. Um, I'm not an economist, but I am a fellow member of the Labour Party, and I seek reassurance, really, that... Um, what you've done this evening is a means to achieve an end, Uh, it wasn't until 47 minutes in that you said that the main argument is always humanitarian, Um, and I just wondered where uh, this kind of reasoning leaves people for whom the economic argument which you made so excellently can't be made, people with severe mental health problems, or are they assumed to be caught within services that would arise from
5: what you can achieve?
0: Um, I, I think so. I, I think the question is, we, I mean, Richard is making an economic argument, um, you know, as, you know, as a typical thing. But are, are you saying that um, could you not make a more direct argument, just on humanitarian well, grounds?
1: Well, now, I think this is very interesting. If you're talking <coughs> now about the politics of mental health. I mean, it is extraordinary that we are in this situation where um, it it is not taken seriously uh, by an awful lot of people who ought to know better, in particular, we're talking of course of the people who hand out the money in the National Health Service. I mean, you cannot believe the difficulty of just keeping their eyes on the ball at all. Um, as, as soon as, you know, they need to find um, a few hundred thousand pounds well, to take, take it out of, uh, of IAPT I mean, well, wh- who's going to notice? Uh, you know, give it to Chiropody I mean, it is completely, somebody will notice if the Chiropody service goes and they'll, they'll complain um, but nobody will complain if it's taken out of IAPT It's true, nobody will complain if it's taken out of IAPT Uh, nobody except some benevolent people so it's uh, of course we would like to have a rising up of the mentally ill in their own defence but it's not likely to happen and that's why um, they get so little shrift and because they don't rise up uh, nor their relatives rise up, it's more relatives but I mean if you've got cancer your relatives are absolutely um, yeah, yeah. on the case 100% and they'll complain if you're not being dealt with but I mean if you're mentally ill your relatives may not be willing to admit that you're mentally ill or certainly don't want to admit in public by making a row uh, that uh, they've got a mentally ill person in their family um, it's a huge problem um, and I think if I may say so slightly delicately here that there there is no really vocal mental health lobby in the NGO world um, which there needs to be and whether any of the existing ones can be turned into it or whether it needs a new one is quite an important issue uh, at this juncture Um, but uh, uh, it is going to for the reasons that, that you've sort of referred to, I think, um, the, ca- the, the case for the mentally ill is going to have to be made to a large extent by the people who are not mentally ill. And that's different from cancer or diabetes or whatever.
0: Um, I'm very sorry, we're almost completely out of time right now. Um, there's <laughs> okay. I, if it's if it's okay with you, which I might just you take a couple of questions, and you can your your liberty <coughs> to. Uh, so there's a patient lady here, and then another gentleman over there at <coughs> the back.
6: Hello, a my. I speak short as well. Yeah, my name is Mary Fennick. I'm here as a journalist, a coach, a mother of four, and a school governor. Um, the strongest statement that I heard from you, if if I were to be covering this as a journalist, was about the attack on child mental health. Services and this ties in with your comment. Now, I just wondered if you see anybody who is leading the defence of those cuts to child mental health services?
1: Well, I think Child Mind, okay. what, what, what's 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 the name? Of that, um, Young Minds. Young Minds. They're, they're the main defenders.
0: Yeah. And finally, the uh, patient gentleman right at the back there, with the laptop in front of him, open up. I Okay, sure.
3: <clears throat> Hello there. Uh, my name is Hugo Metcalf. I'm a, a graduate mental health support worker. Uh, my quick question was with regards: you talk about the costs and uh, measuring quantifiable outcomes. I take it then you're in favour of the payment by results sort of system the NHS is contemplating <laughs> introducing. <laughs> very,
1: very, very interesting question. <laughs> David and I have spent a lot of time trying to divide <laughs> the scale. <laughs> um, uh, I mean, in the in the in the situation in which we are, um that is probably the best way to go forward. I mean, that is a way to get to get the money, one, and two, to maintain the standard of the service. Um and, and this is a very important point that it's it's been too easy for, for poor quality services just to continue being funded in the past with nobody knowing what they're achieving. Well, once we've got into this outcome measurement world, um, all of that is out in the open and it could, be op- it could be out in the open in terms of benchmarking, that might be enough personally my instincts are that way, but in the way that the health service is going, if it goes further into actual paying, paying for, for outcomes, um, that will also help to serve that quality uh, maintaining uh, um, element. I wanted to make one point which was suggested suggest- suggest to me by something somebody said here about Action for Happiness. <coughs> uh, among the groups, of course, which we're very keen to, to see springing up, are groups at LSE. So if there's anybody here who would be interested in initiating an Action for Happiness group at LSE, please see me afterwards. <laughs> so uh, it
0: just remains to me to once again thank Richard for a really fascinating lecture once again. And uh, do the news away.
1: Yeah.